Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Weather is now wonderful. Went for a great hike today in the lovely hiking trails in the area, which I highly encourage you to come visit. Come visit Santa Barbara. We should maybe have a meetup here. It'll be kind of fun, right? Yeah, before we begin, remember there's a website wealthformula.com that's where you go to get all the goodies uh you get you know you get there's some resources there for you books to download webinars also that's where you're going to go if you're going to sign up for the accredited investor club now the accredited investor club it is a place where you go if you're interested in potential deal flow i do need to tell you this that there is going to be quite a bit of deal flow coming down the pipe as blood begins seeping through the streets of uh, the real estate market on the multifamily side, certainly, I mean, we don't do office and we don't do that kind of thing. Those are already hemorrhaging. Those are already on CPR at best. But anyway, but then what about single family homes? We never talked about those. And uh, it's probably worth talking about. And because it is different. It's a different world, right? And what a crazy, crazy ride it's been for a single family. I mean, despite COVID, plunging interest rates actually made home prices explode to new highs. In my own quaint little neighborhood of Montecito, prices literally doubled. I mean, it was madness, complete madness. Then it started to look like the housing bubble had started to burst. Still not in my neighborhood, but in the rest of the country. Uh, there were mortgage companies in distress, laid off thousands of people. Economists warned the next housing recession being upon us. It all made sense, actually. I mean, after all, what, uh, you know, after such a wild ride, how could that not end up with a hangover? But then a funny thing happened. For the last few months, housing prices actually started creeping up again. Weird. Weird, right? Well, they aren't going up by much, but the big thing is they're not going down despite these super high interest rates now, relatively speaking, of course. A lot of this is really due to reduced inventory and buying pressure. People who are going to sell their homes, you know, in the last couple of years, most of them likely sold because they saw their, their quote unquote largest asset, their homes, bubble into a pile of potential cash. Why wouldn't you sell? If you were going to sell, then was the time to sell, right? And now with less inventory, bidding wars are helping to push prices up further. In fact, Zillow predicts home prices will keep rising 
in 2024. Obviously, a lot of that's going to depend on what the Fed does in the next few months, and we'll see what happens, right? I'm not sure. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Zillow knows more than me. This stuff is really difficult to predict, and uh, that's why I got my uh, guest on this week's show. He is a guy who has a company that works uh, using big data, big data, and he'll define exactly what big data is as well, to look at the housing markets, the, specifically the single-family home market. So anyway, it's an area we haven't really discussed much about. Make sure you uh, tune in right after we come back from these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Mike Simonson. He is the founder and president of real estate analytics from firm Elto's Research, uh, which has provided national and local real estate data to financial institutions, real estate professionals, and investors. That can be found at altosresearch.com. Michael, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Buck. Nice to be here. So um, your focus is on this concept of um, big data. Maybe you could explain to us like sort of just in the beginning, what exactly is big data and how is it generated? Well, yeah, you know, what Altos does is we track every home for sale in the country once a week, every week. So, you know, it's the pricing, it's the changes in the pricing, it's the supply and demand and all of these things. Um, and it, that turns out to be valuable because if you look at the traditional way that the housing market was tracked, uh, it was looking at the homes that sold last month, the closed right. sales last month. Sure. And, uh, you know, while there's some signal there, there's a ton of signal in the active market. You know, the, the, how long are they taking on the market? Which ones have had price cuts? How big are those price cuts? There's all this signal that was never tracked before. And so, you know, we have this capacity to track a lot more data and understand more about the market and where things are heading and, and, you know, is it a good time? All these questions about the market now. And that's really, you know, the power of big data. Yeah. That we now, get to do. Does that include uh, multifamily or is it just single family homes or? Well, we track is um, we track single family and multifamily condos and townhomes. And, and we also track things like um, 
investment property, like apartment buildings, like the small unit apartment buildings, like one to four or eight units. Right. Um, when we're doing broad analyses uh, about trends, there's actually not a lot of those, you know, one to four units compared to how many mm you know, total homes there are on, on the market. And so it's a, it's a lot harder to, to, to do a trend on say, you know, apartment buildings. It's, it's only like LA County has a lot of them, but most of the country, there's one or two here or there that, that are, that are on the market at any given time. Got it. Got it. And is there uh, for example, for people who invest in, you know, significant apartment complexes, things like that. Is there data that you can extrapolate to that? Uh, or is Well, this- you know, what we do on the apartment complexes side is we track rents. Yeah. And so, you know, we can watch rents around the country and how those are changing week to week. And, and it's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's signal in that as well. So, you know, we can look at, um, you, you can look at the pricing and the changes in rents and you can, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of um, uh, insight to be right, in there. Sure. When, when we're talking about like big apartment complexes, those transactions are even more rare. Right. And therefore it's like, it, it's like a, that's a very specialized kind of data that you might be tracking. Right. Sure. So, um, well, let's, let's jump into it. What is the, um, you know, when you, when you look at nationwide, you know, what kinds of information are you getting right now? What, what, uh, what kind of signals are you getting? So the, the biggest, uh, theme of the year is the, uh, available inventory of homes on the market has been dramatically lower than we expected. Fewer homes available to buy. And the, you know, Inventory, available inventory has been falling for a decade, really, since uh, the beginning part of the last decade. Each year, fewer and fewer homes on the market, fewer available supply for people to buy, for home buyers to buy, for investors to buy, because because we've been hoarding them, we've been owning them more. Investors are buying more, um, even when it's like, when I go to buy a next house, I keep the first one for an investment property, all those things take homes out of the active inventory. Uh, they keep them for, they, you know, we keep them owned. They're not resold. And so then, he, so here in, Mon- so where I, li- I live in uh, Montecito in Santa Barbara area. And one thing that, you know, anecdotally, I have no data to, to say this, but basically it would look like what happened was anybody who was even potentially thinking about selling sold when there was so much froth in the market. Right. Yep. And um, and now it's like, OK, well, rates are going up and everything. And so anybody who was, you know, who's going to sell probably sold. And now all of a sudden their um, rates are so much higher and potentially, although not where I live, uh, the the values are, are starting to fall because people can afford less homes. Right. Um, yeah. And so so that that's like locally, at least when I think about what's happening, that that would explain that. But do you see that? explanation potentially is uh, more of a national explanation or no? So, so it turns out that, that last year when rates spiked, we saw the, the, we saw prices adjust down, right? We saw affordability got way out of whack of prices adjust down a little bit. And we expected that to continue this year, expected to have inventory to continue to rise you know, we had demand stopped cold last in the second half of last year. And so we expected demand to continue to rise. 
But what happened was it did not. We had more demand than we had supply this year. And we still have, we, we, so we've, we have less than we started, less inventory available now, which is normally the peak of the year. And we have less inventory available now than when we, than New Year's weekend, right? Like there is, so we've had more demand across the country mm-hmm. than we had, have had supply this year. And so, so um, has that, that sort of artificially surprise. kept prices up in a way? Cause normally you would expect, yeah. you know, in these situations, if rates are going up, then maybe the value of the properties are going down. But then if you have less inventory altogether and people need to buy a place, then they have less competition. And so that would sort of keep prices up higher. That's exactly right. Like the quantity demanded, even at these rates and these prices has been higher than the quantity supplied this year. And so inventory has been falling. And I think there's a few things that go on, like people who are buying now are, you know, they're stretching to make the payment, but they can make the payment. And then they're rolling the dice. If rates go down in uh, 18 months, then they can refinance and that only gets cheaper for them. So like, those are the, the calculations that people have been making this year. Um, and they're, and, and so they're finding a ways around the, the higher rates in order to make the, to, to do the buy that it's like time to buy the house. Is this, um, what are you seeing like as, you know, like, uh, obviously this show is, there's a lot of real estate investors, right? And so if you look, uh, we always talk about how real estate is generally local, right? And, and so, um, this national data is great, but like when you look at, you know, individual markets, um, what looks like, you know, which markets look like they are potentially ripe for investors? You know, this year, it was uh, the the big change of the last year. You know, we had the boom markets. We had the Western U.S., South and West, you know, Phoenix and Austin and, and Boise. These were all the big boom markets during the pandemic. Sure. And they slowed the fastest last year, second half of last year, uh, Denver and Salt Lake and like all of these markets slowed really dramatically last year. Um, almost all of those recovered uh, this year, but the real strength through that process through the second half of last year and the beginning of this year were the central and Northeast markets. Uh, Inventory never rose in those markets. We had buyers buying those. And I think those are often more affordable, you know, in Ohio and in those kind of places where, um, you know, that they weren't as far out of whack as affordability got in Austin or, uh, or even Phoenix. And so, um, so you could see that. So there's, you know, we, we have investor competition in the same places that we have, we have, you know, uh, regular home buyer competition. It's, you know, investors are buying in Phoenix. And then when the rates spiked, the investors stopped very quickly. Mm-hmm. Has that affected uh, so, the prices there? It did. And um, though they have recovered this spring because um, with with an almost all of those markets, um, places like Phoenix and things have recovered demand, like supply has fallen. People have been buying the things that are available. Uh, there was some, the top of the pricing came off. So, you know, all of a sudden, if you're an investor, the, the cap rates got out of whack last July. Then all of a sudden they were, you could see like, oh, I can get a little discount and now it's back into my, my buy box. And so those were bought, they were, they were like gobbled up very quickly this year. Any about amount of, of home price adjustment in those 
destination investor markets, investors were there with cash ready to, to, to compete. Yeah. That's been an ongoing, um, you know, theory and we'll see how it plays out that, you know, the, obviously there's quite a bit of distress in multifamily and apartment complexes, which were involved with, um, in that space. And, uh, that even despite the, you know, the economic issues that surround, uh, these properties, um, that the values may not drop as much as we would uh, predict simply because there's so much demand, so much money sitting there waiting to get deployed. Um, and I, I'm that's just, my observation, yeah. uh, especially in the, the single family, you know, that, that side of the investor pool, the bigger, you know, the bigger uh, complexes that have variable rate interest like those there's there's still a lot i think of of pain to happen there sure the um but but you know nobody who owns you know smaller properties in the u.s has variable rate interest and so every one of those investors has a really good deal and you can really see that right you can see um you could see the big investors the big wall street investors stopped most aggressively the the onesie twosies slowed way down and the middle range investors, the ones that are professional investors, they own 50 or 100 doors, kind of that size company, uh, those barely slowed at all last year. Yeah. And so, you know, the professional investors that are, you know, built that run that business were uh, they were like, I buy houses and I'm going to keep buying houses. And you could really see that um, none of those categories, the big, middle or small size, none of them were active sellers. Sure. Right. They're still holding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, in that end, like if you have a great rate on your house that you bought and during this period, and all of a sudden rates have doubled or tripled or whatever, why in the world would you sell now and trying to get into another house with a much higher rate, right? Like it just doesn't make any sense. So, yep. um, with, with your data, what are you seeing on the, um, on the renter side? What are you seeing, um, like say, shifting demographics, that kind of thing when it comes to renters? You know, we had, um, the thing that surprised me most this year is how uh, household formation has held up. Uh, and therefore that is, so we, while our rent appreciation, you know, was skyrocketing during the pandemic, year over year rents were going up, you know, 10 or 12 or 15%. Uh, that that year over year appreciation has come down a little, a little positive. So like two, 4% kind of growth uh, on rents, um, but it didn't fall negative. Right. So like I've been continued to be surprised that, you know, we've had recession signals, but we haven't had like people are still fully employed and in, and incomes are still going up. And we have all of these things that have, uh, have continued to provide support for, uh, that that I I wasn't expecting, um, but but they they're still there. Um, we can see that in in things like um, you know the migration paths have slowed. The California people buying in Austin or Phoenix have slowed, but they're still there. Yeah, yeah. Can your data? give i mean can you pick up signals of recessionary activity and that kind of thing with the data that you're collecting that's a good question we track the house we track the homes for sale and so in some ways there are the, the you know the ways that housing 
is connected to recessions, it's actually lagging in a lot of cases. So, you know, one of the ways we might finally see some available inventory for investors or for home buyers would be, you know, you have distressed sellers, people lose their job and they need to, you know, they, they have a mortgage they can't afford and they need to sell the house or they're an investor and, you know, they're, they're upside down on something and they need to unload some of that, those properties. Um, but what happens is those that distressed inventory can take like 12 or 18 months after the start of the recession before you see the inventory. You think about it like you, you've got a house now. Let's say you bought a, an investment house and, and now you lose your job and you lose your renter. Um, and now you're you're struggling. And uh, but, you know, it's like. I'm going to, maybe I'm going to get a new job. Well, I don't get a new job for 90 days. Now I stop making my mortgage payment. And now it's another 90 days before I even start talking to the bank. It's six months after the big parts, job loss parts of the recession before I even start talking to the bank. And then it might be six or 12 months after that before it gets forced into sale or those kind of things. So, so a lot of times the housing market is lagging recession, uh, certainly an inventory like distressed inventory. And so, you know, for people who have been bearish on housing, which there have been a lot of housing bears in the last year and uh, afraid of bubble conditions or, you know, affordability. Right. And so those folks who are thinking there's a recession coming and therefore we're going to see some inventory, we're going to see floods of inventory. Then when we have floods of inventory, prices are going to crash. Like that's the bearish scenario. But the distressed inventory is now looking like 2025 at the earliest because people are still employed right now. Maybe by the end of the year, they start losing their jobs. Then therefore, it's like 2025 before we see that inventory. So if if you have that bearish, you know, scenario, like that inventory is probably, you know, two years from now. Yeah. How about building? Um, do you, do you follow building, uh, because obviously that has a pretty significant effect, certainly on the, uh, the rental market, like new availability and competition, all that. So what, uh, what are you, which markets are having, say the most success with zoning and, and building policies and, and getting things through? Um, I guess that's one question. And then another question would be like, you know, are, is building is there building going on right now at the rate that it needs to be? You know, I I um, I'm in the camp that says you know we've been underbuilding for the last decade, uh, and you know we can see that the long term average is like a million and a half homes per year that we added, and then post great financial crisis it was more like half a million, and now we're getting back close to the long term average. So we have been, we've been underbuilding for the, the last decade. Um, and, you know, you can see some uh, green shoots in terms of zoning and things in, in especially some of the most uh, challenging states like California and Washington, where they're starting to do some zoning for density, um, doing multi multiple unit on single family, like uh, uh, zoning kind of thing. So, so it seems to me that we have a little bit of momentum for some good policy in terms of getting more construction to happen. Uh, But there's still a lot of, we have a long way to go in that front. 
And and why is that? Tell me why we why do we need more building? We have uh, for all the policy for fifty years in this country. All of the policy, uh, all of the tax law, all of the 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 local laws is is designed to favor the owner of the house, right? Keep you in the house, make sure you get a good deal on the house, make sure your mortgages are cheap. Like all of our systems are designed for the homeowner. Yeah. And, and as a result, like that keeps our home prices higher and it makes it less affordable for new families to come in. Right. We live in, I live in California too. And you look at, you know, kids growing up in California today, if you're starting a young family in California today, it's so out of whack. It's one of the reasons why you have to go buy in Texas, right? Because, because that's where they're building the houses. Yeah. And, and so um, policymakers, I think, see that Uh, everybody can see that, that, you know, the affordability challenge. And so like, we're starting to, to see some of that, that change there. There's, there's so much, you know, momentum against that, you know, that like, you know, in California, we have Prop 13, which keeps property tax rates artificially low. And therefore, it's even even a better deal to not sell my house and to keep it forever. And therefore, we have chronic shortage of inventory in California. And it's, you know, Texas has high property taxes. And it's one of the reasons I talk about it's ironically, it's high property taxes in Texas is one of the reasons that Texas has a, a better functioning housing market than does California. Like it's, it's more expensive to hold your house. So you put it back on the resale market and, and therefore, you know, there's more opportunity for people to buy. Therefore prices are lower. Like all of those things happen. And in California, we, we have, and it's a really good deal if you already own. Yeah. It's a, the good, it's a, makes for a good rental market in Texas as well then. Right. I mean, cause you're not really worrying yourself necessarily about the property tax changes, although you, no, you you do you do experience that through rises in in rental uh, costs. What do you see? Like, okay, so you know, a lot of your when you look at big data, I'm curious. You know, one of the things that I would be curious if I was looking at a big set of data like that is like, where's the next? You know, where, where's the next boom? Where's the next phoenix? Where, where's the next? Uh, you know, because we we have population growth, we have a shortage in housing. We you've just talked about how people you know started moving um, out of California and they hit Austin like crazy. No, Austin's really expensive. So where's the next Austin? Where's the next Phoenix? Yeah. Um, so I'm not. Um, I'll caveat this by saying like I'm not a, a an investor or a trader. Oh, I don't even sense. mean it as but, an investor, but I just mean like where's the next place that's booming, you know? Yeah. So I think we can see a few things. One is we know the growth markets in the South and East. So the, the Charlottes and Atlantas and, you know, uh, Tampa's, um, uh, I have, um, colleagues at a company called Resi shares, which is a, an investor and a data analytics, data driven investor platform. And, and they do the, migration and economic and growth uh, conditions. And what they do is they take previously great markets and they say, who looks like that today? So it was like, if buying in Denver 10 or 12 years ago was a really good deal, who looks like Denver today? And, and one of their observations, like Tampa 
looks like Denver today is uh-huh. their view. Uh-huh. And, and so I think that's a really neat way to look at it, yeah. you know, based on all of those elements that they can see. Um, and so they direct their, you know, like one of their buy boxes is in Tampa for that reason um, b- because they can see it. And then they also do that. They drive that down into lower like zip code level. What parts of Tampa are, are the yeah. ones that we're going to perform the best? Where, where else Tampa just, I mean, I'm just, we're just curious. Yeah. So, um, you can see it in markets, um, that are, uh, I'd call them tertiary. So, you know, we, we had, you know, you had the booms in Denver and Austin, but you know, Austin is, is really unaffordable right now. Right. And so, so like you then, but, but El Paso and San Antonio, are significantly uh, more affordable. And so you can see that opportunity shift to those markets from the, from the big, the big, um, you know, focus of the last decade. Yeah. Got it. Interesting stuff. Um, The um, again, uh, Michael, the, the, tell me about a little bit more about Altos research uh, and, you know, who uses Altos research, um, you know, who are your clients, that kind of thing. Yeah, we so Altos Research. We track every home for sale in the country every week. We and we analyze all the pricing and the supply and demand and all the changes in that data, and then we bubble up the analytics for for our clients. Uh, we we work with uh, realtors and loan officers and and people in the industry to we do local market data for them to get to their clients. So if, you know, if you're a real estate investor and you have your realtor, you might be getting your your like market report from your realtor that we'd, we'd create and prepare for them. We also work with, um, with big enterprises like lenders and home builders and hedge funds. And, you know, like, uh, the, the big enterprises that have exposure to real estate across the country, and they need to know right now what's happening in the housing market. You know, most housing market, uh, most housing data, traditional housing data is lagging you know, it's several months old by the time you hear it, like, like the case Schiller index, you know, that is, that is the latest headlines now is for March, you know, (laughs) it's March data and it includes January, February, March transactions in it. But, you know, we're at the end of June and like, we can see already what, what's going to close in July and August, you know? So like, that's the, that's the kind of reason that you use our data. And I publish each week, I do a video on YouTube and a, a podcast where I look at the national data and the changes in the national data each week. And so like inventory is inventory climbing rates went to 7%. Yeah. How is the market responding to that? And, and, you know, you can watch in real time what's happening way before the headlines get there. Uh-huh. And how do you find that? What's the, uh, is the, your, uh, your handle there? Yeah. So on YouTube, it's Altos Research. It's the Altos Research YouTube channel. And you can find it. And I do a video every Monday. You can follow me on Twitter, Mike Simonson on Twitter. I published that or LinkedIn. You can find me there. And, you know, we're, we are part of HW media, which owns housing wire now. So we were acquired by HW media uh, last year. And so you can also see our, uh, the data gets published every, every Monday and Tuesday on, in, in housing wire. If you read housing wire, um, you can go there and, and find that, that uh, as well. Thanks, Mike. Uh, appreciate your time. It's good information. And uh, hopefully people will, uh, check you out on those various social media channels and to, to keep up with the most current thing, uh, I guess, that you can get out there right now. So Mike Simonson from Altos Research, uh, thanks for joining us, Mike. Buck, pleasure to be here. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, just as a reminder, if you want to sign up for our investor club, you should seriously consider doing so and uh, potentially getting onboarded. Obviously, I need to be an accredited investor. You can't just be, a, you, you know, you, you do have to have, unfortunately, some net worth or income, two to $300,000 in income, basically 200 if you're single, 300 if you're filing jointly, a million dollars uh, or and or a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. But if you qualify, you should get onboarded. Sign up for Investor Club at uh, wealthformula.com and you'll get onboarded there. And uh, boom, you'll be in line for things that potentially come up for us. I also want to remind you that there's this podcast called Sapia with Buck Joffrey. Yes, that is the same Buck Joffrey. And that is a podcast that's really focusing primarily right now on the, the longevity health science space. And it's really interesting. Check that out. You'll be able to find it with the same way that you currently listen to Wealth Formula. And I would uh, certainly appreciate your support there. It's really a labor of love. Uh, and I think you will find it very, very interesting. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.